This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Rise and shine. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and tune in to Good Morning Aurora. News, weather, and really cool interviews. Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. Good morning, sir. Morning, Curtis. Good to see you. Thank you for tell your time and doing this for us. Uh, happy to be here. All right. Uh, for those of you, uh, for those of us who are unfamiliar with who you are, let us know first who you are and where you're from. Well, I'm uh, Congressman Bill Foster. It's my honor to represent Aurora as part of the 11th Congressional District of Illinois in the United States House of Representatives. Absolutely wonderful. Um, now, how long have you been a congressman? Well, I entered Congress in March of 2008 uh, in a special election uh, uh, against Dennis Hastert, um, who I will not be talking much about today. Um, but he was uh, represented Aurora and uh, the area west of Aurora for, geez, more than 20 years, and um, and everyone thought that the uh, you know the district around Aurora, um, which had been controlled by Republicans for generations. Uh, was one that a Democrat like myself just didn't have a chance in. And so um, when I decided to leave leave science, I worked at Fermilab uh, in the years preceding, um, and enter politics, you know, I honestly thought that it was something where I didn't have a realistic chance, that they were probably right because the Republicans had been controlling the area for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. But I, you know, I, I looked at it, I knew the people who lived here, and I thought they would be open to being represented by a scientist and a businessman instead of, you know, just another career politician. Yeah, put me down for the scientist and businessman ballot right there. I love it. Um, so let's start off with some science. What is quark? A quark is one of the fundamental building blocks of matter. Uh, so if you look at, at normal atoms, they're built of... Uh, uh, there's a nucleus and then the electron cloud, and if you take the nucleus apart, you find protons and neutrons inside the nucleus. And then you take the protons and neutrons apart, and you find that each one of them is made up of three quarks, oh. either what's called an up quark or a down quark. And then you take the, take the protons and neutrons and, and other particles and slam them together, and all of a sudden you find that more quarks are created, that there are different kinds of quarks. There's the up-down, there's the charm, the strange, and then there's the bottom and the top quark, and the one of them, and then it appears to end for various complicated theoretical reasons. That's all there is. So why are there this limited number of quarks in the universe? Um, and for many years, people hunted for the last quark, the top quark, uh, which was it's the heaviest known form of matter. And they thought it was going to be not too different than the mass of a proton at first, maybe a few times. And then they kept building bigger and bigger and bigger accelerators to smash particles in with more and more energy. And with, then with Einstein's equation of E equals mc squared, the more E you have, 
the more mass, the more m you can make, and you can make more massive particles. And the E is energy. E is energy. With more energy, you can make more massive particles. And so, uh, so we're able to, to make the lighter quarks, but then people were unable to make the top quark. And it was only after Fermilab invented the superconducting synchrotron, the Tevatron is the name of the machine, and made superconducting magnet work, magnets work at a scale that had never before been attempted. And when that machine worked, we finally had a machine powerful enough that you could smash protons and antiprotons together to actually produce the top quark. Which is, you know, one of Fermilab's uh, greatest, one of the United States' greatest scientific discoveries, and you know, it's it's likely uh, that it will remain the most massive particle that will ever be discovered. And something we can all be proud of that, you know, in the Illinois middle of the Illinois plains and this giant accelerator that we we made this discovery that will be in the science textbooks forever. Absolutely wonderful. Okay, um, what was your very first day like at? Fermilab. You worked at Fermilab. What was that like? Were you nervous? Um, oh, not really. You know, I was pretty young and arrogant at the time. You know, I think, you know, I had, um, went, I, I sort of went to a non-standard uh, trajectory because I didn't start out, I didn't um, grow up and uh, immediately become a scientist. Uh, when I was 19, my little brother and I uh, started a company in our basement with $500 from my parents and so that company now manufactures about two-thirds of all the theater lighting equipment in the United States. I saw that. So when you go to the Paramount Theater or the Lyric Theater Opera downtown or, or you know, Rolling Stones tours, uh, just, you know, or churches, schools, community theaters all around the country, about two-thirds that we of that equipment is stuff made by our company. Could be even in here, you never Could know. Could be, I don't, I have a look when I look at it. I think you're, you're buying, like, you know, a cheap, uh, cheap knockoff product. <laughs> but, we can do better, basically, well, I, right? I'd have to have a better look around to see if there's uh, some here. But it's, you know, it's, we've got a, a pretty good market share. But that, um, you know, so I ran that for most of a decade. And then I returned to my first love, which was physics. And uh, so I went back to Harvard and got a PhD in um, particle physics. And then, and then Fermilab was really the, the best place in the world to do physics at the time. And that's why I came to the area. That uh, Fermilab was in the process of building and getting the Tevatron, the giant superconducting accelerator, to work. And everyone was excited because we would finally be able to do things like discover the top quark and, and other and other particles. Um, and so it was really the center of the universe. For the 20 years that I was there, we had the highest energy particle accelerator in the world. And um, when you can do things that no one else can, uh, you, know, you have this sort of a scientific monopoly. And it was, um, I like so it was, it was very exciting, the, the feeling of excitement. Uh, we knew the accelerator was coming and, and the group that I worked for initially was one that was building what's called a particle detector where you smash the protons and antiprotons together and you get a spray of all kinds of particles coming off the collision point. And then the detector analyzes that spray and says, okay, what was it that happened inside this collision? And was it a top quark or something like that? Where were you born and raised? I was born in Madison, Wisconsin and mostly raised there. But my, my parents traveled all around at different times I was raised in in San Francisco, southern France, London, um, 
My dad was a uh, law professor at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, like me, he was a, a scientist, actually, who left science to become a civil rights lawyer. And, um, and my father actually wrote a lot of the enforcement language behind the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is one of the tremendous steps forward for human rights. Right, and I noticed that now the enforcement language, that was about schools not receiving federal funds if they continue Correct. to practice discrimination. Correct. Yeah. Okay. There was about 10 years um, after the famous Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education where the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional to have separate school systems for the different races, primarily in the South but other places in the country as well. Um, and so then that was in 1954, and it wasn't until 1964 that we had the Civil Rights Act and other uh, federal laws that passed uh, associated with it um, that for the first time uh, made it, there was a lot of federal funding available for school systems, but we could put conditions on it, like you have to finally pay attention to the Supreme Court. But during the 10 years after Brown versus Board of Education and before the Civil Rights Act, uh, my father um, uh, was a law professor, but he traveled around the South and uh, would interview um, you know, school boards and federal judges and county executives and, and everyone involved with trying to comply with Brown versus Board of Education. And so he served as sort of an advance man for the, the Justice Department of the United States. And would, he would go and interview um, interview these people and then send back memos to the Justice Department. Uh, you see, my dad grew up in the South. He grew, grew up in Tennessee mostly, and so he could turn on the Southern accent and make everyone feel at home um, with his law professor. And so, and then he would he would talk to them, understand what was possible in that county or that school district, right. and then send back memos saying, you know, in this county, there's, for example, there's one man and he runs the place, but he understands the tide of history. And if you can have Robert Kennedy or Burke Marshall or whoever was running the Justice Department Civil Rights Division at the time, have him give him a call and if you can flip him, um, everything will be fine. But in this other county, just forget it, just to bring in the troops and file suit. Wow. And so, and it was actually reading his papers after he passed away about 20 years ago now, that I first started thinking and, and about you know, this question that everyone has to answer about what fraction of your life you spend in service to your fellow man. And looking at the letters that my, my dad sent back and forth to his parents um, when he was thinking of leaving science and, and entering politics first and eventually civil rights, that made me think about that question because I'd had a wonderful career in, um, in physics and in business. Um, but I always felt that there was something missing, that part of your life should be spent in service to your fellow man. And right, that's, what led me to, that's what led me to um, eventually to the United States Congress. Um, so you currently serve as chairman of the Financial Services Committee's Task Force on AI, Artificial Intelligence. What current work is taking place on the committee in regards to AI? Well, AI is being used, um, you know, very famously by tech firms, just to go and, and look at all of your tweets and all your Facebook postings and figure out what's inside your head and to send more <laughs> of that. 
And you know, sometimes that actually, I think, causes a lot of damage, where people that are a little bit extreme are then exposed to even more extreme Facebook feeds, yes. and, it starts, and it starts amplifying the divisions in society. So there are dangers there. But in financial services and in banking, there are, there's a whole class of dangers having to do with perpetuating bias. Because if um, the way machine learning works, artificial intelligence, is you give it a big sample of, of something. You know, for example, you can give it a big sample of here are where people live and the sort of houses that they live in. Okay? And then if you say, okay, from an advertising point of view, I have a house that I want to sell. And they say, what kind of person uh, lives in that kind of house? Let's advertise to those people then what happens is that the AI, you know, without a, a racist line of code in its, in its computer mm -hmm. program, um, it will say, oh, you look like someone that lives in East Aurora. We will market this house to you. Right. You look like someone that lives um, in, you know, some wealthy Skulky. area somewhere. Yeah. Or, just, you know, whatever. And, and so what you will do is it will perpetuate existing patterns of bias in our society. And trying to figure out how to prevent that is tough, because uh, this can happen completely inadvertently. Uh, that you can, um, you know, it can. Uh, it, it's not like someone says, "I want to make a racist algorithm," but it will become racist unless you're really careful. And so you have to insist that these are tested to find out if they've developed racial biases, mm -hmm. and then you have to insist that the, they be reprogrammed to lean against those biases so they're neutral. So that that you are that people are shown houses that they can afford no matter what, uh, what they look like. Right. Where where, um, you know, it's not like they look at a picture of you, to figure out um, you know all of your ethnic characteristics. What it turns out there are all these incredible things that the um, that the computer programs the AI can pick up on to sort of guess what kind what race you are. Such as music you listen to, right. the post that you find well, it turns funny. Out minorities are less likely to use Macintoshes as Windows machines. Okay? Mm -hmm. You know, not obvious, but it turns out the AI figured it out. And so um, so it'll say, okay, if you're logging into our website using a Windows machine um, you know, we will steer you toward certain houses, and if you're logging in with a Macintosh, we'll steer you toward houses. And, you know, that doesn't sound racist <laughs> when you start, but it, it can rapidly um, get racist without the programmers even being aware of it. Well, much more nefarious if the programmers are trying their very best to market or reach out to one demographic and have them. Yeah, right. that's right. And But there are... I think the biggest danger um, is unintended consequences. Right. There's a, a famous old joke in artificial intelligence about you have a, a super intelligent computer program, and then you say, okay, or Mr. Computer Program, here's your job. I want you to maximize production of paper clips. And so the program sits back and it thinks for a few milliseconds, and then it says, okay, I know what to do now, and it starts killing all people on Earth because they interfere with paperclip production. <laughs> and so that's an old joke. I think I heard it probably in grad school or maybe as an undergrad many years ago. Um, but it's sort of, if you think of that, sort of what happened with Facebook, where the Facebook's artificial intelligence engines were told, maximize Facebook's profit. Okay? Right. And then it thought for a little while and said, oh, therefore we want to maximize user engagement. And the first thing to do is to destroy rational political debate in our country and get everyone angry at each other. So there's a lot of Facebook engagement and a lot of Facebook profits.
And so I don't think they intended to do that, but there's no question that that's a big part of, um, you know, some right. of the dangers of artificial intelligence. Now, how can AI assist mankind in our current climate crisis? Oh, just as a technical tool, it has been spectacular. Like one of the the real um, long-standing challenges for science is what's called the protein folding problem. You know, if you analyze a gene, you can analyze it and say, here is exactly the sequence of of um, amino acids produced in the protein uh, that the, that's being expressed. But and so it's like a long piece of spaghetti. But then the way proteins work is that you are a long necklace with different beads on it. And then you let go of it and it goes and it curls up in a very specific shape. And this is the and trying to figure out, knowing just the sequence of beads on the necklace, how it will crumple up. It's called the protein folding problem. And the the nature of proteins and the, how they work in our body depend crucially on how they're folded up. Like like the, the spike protein on the coronavirus. You've probably heard about the spike um, and you know the delta variant. I have. And the, yep. You know, and and so this the spike protein is an example of that, where people knew the um, you know they knew the sequence of amino acids on the necklace, uh, but didn't know how it would fold up to be a spike. Um, some of that was actually studied at um, at Argonne National Laboratory, um, just down the road here, um, where they they had a giant particle accelerator uh, called the Advanced Light Source that made a very powerful beam of x-rays to study the exact shape of things like the spike protein. And, um, but artificial intelligence has provided, uh, this is big news in science, just in the last uh, three or four months, that they have used advanced uh, artificial intelligence to be able to calculate on a computer um, what the folded up structure will look like. So it looks like they've solved uh, what was a long-standing problem. Um, and just one of many examples where uh, the good side of artificial intelligence um, allowing us to, um, you know, produce a, a drug, you mm -hmm. know, a protein and know exactly how the molecules will fit together and um, make better drugs. When we started, you mentioned that you have a background in science and in business as opposed to being a career politician. What does that background bring to the table now as a congressman? Doing the thing that you do and and the issues. Well, in terms of um, in terms of being a scientist, almost every issue that we face uh, has a technological aspect to it. You know, whether you're talking about what do we do about Facebook, where we're talking about what do we do about you know the border wall, where people are proposing, well, we don't have to build a wall; we'll just make a big radar system and cameras and all this. Um, so I went down and visited several years ago. Um, the first attempt at making a, a radar system to detect people mm -hmm. uh, crossing the border. Uh, and, and so it was amusing. I went down and talked to the control room of people, talked to the people who designed the radar systems. And you know, the radar systems, at least at the time, could not tell the difference between a person and a cow. Right. And they had huge problems with um, yeah. you know, cattle coming across the border, right. which they do regularly. And they say, well, you know, how many people are sneaking in across along with that, um, that you know, herd of cattle? And so just, you know, issues like that. Um, uh, but a lot, of, a lot of what we have to do, for example, to solve the climate crisis has to do with investments in new technology and trying to make a judgment on when those new technologies simply need more basic research or they're close enough uh, to being practical 
that the time is right for the government to, to subsidize companies to really go into production. Um, so an example of that is uh, what we accomplished now 10 years ago. Um, when we realized, uh, you know, people had understood for a long time that electric cars were cheaper than gas cars except for the battery. And so for decades we put a lot of fundamental research money into new and better batteries. And as a result they kept getting better and better and better. Mm -hmm. the research around the world. And then about 10 years ago, around 2009, 2010, we reached a point where we said, okay, batteries, lithium-ion batteries, you know, cell phone batteries, right. are now have a high enough energy density that if you use them in a car, we have a chance of building a car that will be cheaper than a gas car. And so we put $500 million of federal taxpayer money into this startup called Tesla. And if you, last time I looked, uh, that $500 million federal investment had yielded a company with a market value of about $500 billion. Right. So a thousand to one return on that investment. And of course the, the federal taxpayer has gotten back a tremendous amount of money from capital gains taxes. All the people are holding Tesla shares and are paying tax because it's gone up in value. So we've gotten our money many times over. But if we had tried that investment 10 years earlier, then we would have been asking people to to try to build electric cars with lead acid batteries, you know, old style car batteries. Right. And people tried that, like with a Chevy Bolt, and it was terrible. You know, they had very short ranges. Yep. The batteries wore out quickly. It was not an acceptable product. And so, what you need is someone that understands the technology. When we're placing those bets on technology, uh, we need someone who understands, you know, both the technology and the technological readiness, and also. Um, the business feasibility of it, you know, to look through and say, do you have a real shot of making a profitable company uh, with the technology that we know about so far, or should we continue doing research? Um, there's another very recent example that sort of hit the headlines where um, for 10 years uh, they've been trying to make nuclear fusion. Um, this is the what powers the sun. Right. Um, and they've been trying to do this at laboratory scale, and so we made a very large scientific facility, uh, probably probably three to five billion dollars total. Um, and uh, to what you do is get a little tiny piece of um, hydrogen, and then you hit it with lasers from all directions and squeeze it and make it hot so you get the little mini sun. So that was the idea. And for the last ten years, it, we put it together, and it wasn't working. We just couldn't get this little pellet to ignite. Uh, and, and a lot of people said, all right, it failed, shut it down. And I had um, just, just a few months ago urged this, the incoming Secretary of Energy, I said, look, they are making progress, they're understanding it, um, you know, stay with this project and expand it. And then about, about a month ago, they were just trying, you know, experiment after experiment, and all of a sudden, kaboom. You know, All of a sudden, kaboom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's sort of a binary thing. It's like when you strike a match, it either it lights or it doesn't. Right. And so it lit. And after 10 years of struggle, but you know that depends on having patience in Congress uh, and understanding whether it was time to pull the plug or keep trying. And so it, that that's those are some of many examples where you're really having both business sense and and technological insight is really crucial. H.R. 3224, the I Am Vanessa Guillen Act. Tell us about that. Well, Vanessa Guillen was a soldier in Fort Hood. Um, she was found murdered um, 
um, at a time when she had multiple um, multiple complaints pending about sexual harassment. Okay, and it's I guess the, the we don't have a clear reading on how those two were connected, but was was absolutely clear when they looked at her case is that she was one of many many examples where there was um, sexual abuse or rape happening in the armed services and they had not been properly investigated. Um, you know we have been um, you know this has been a very strong ongoing discussion in the U.S. Congress with the military um, who have for the last ten years when. As, uh, as long as I've been in Congress, the military has been saying, oh, don't worry, we can handle it. Right. And the problem has not been getting any better. And, you know, the obvious solution here is that when there is a complaint, it should be some independent investigator that comes in. The military have been saying, no, don't do that. Uh, that we can handle it ourselves. Just I'm sure the commanding officer will, will investigate it properly. But right. the problem is the commanding officer very often did not. Uh, and for understandable reasons, they don't want it on their record that the troops in their command had problems with sexual sure. um, harassment. And so, um, and so as a result, many of these were not properly investigated or, you know, even worse, maybe it was like they were friends and they didn't want to get their friend in trouble. Of course. And so, um, and so what this does is that, okay, we, you've had 10 years, you haven't fixed the problem. From now on, when there's an allegation of sexual assault, it's being pulled out of the command chain to have an independent investigation. There are other provisions in the bill, but that's the main one. Okay. Um, now, uh, with the little bit of time we have, I, I did want to get your opinion on the new generation. Uh, so you left, are you satisfied with the legacy you left at Fermilab, first of all, and what words of advice or encouragement would you give to the current staff leadership and generation there at Fermilab? Okay, well, well, I am very, I, my career at Fermilab sort of had two phases. The first one I've described, building the particle physics detector and discovering the top quark. And then for the, the sort of the next 10 years that I was at Fermilab, I worked on the giant particle accelerators. And actually the last of the giant machines at Fermilab, the so-called anti-proton recycler ring, was one that I invented and led the teams that built the magnets for me. And so when we fly over in an airplane, I can see these giant rings in the in the prairie out there. Oh yeah, one of those rings that my machine's in that. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in the tunnels, on the underground tunnels where these giant accelerators are. You know, getting mm -hmm. a machine to built and getting it to work. Uh, and so, so interestingly, that machine, which was built for colliding protons and antiprotons, which um, which stopped being done around 2011 at Fermilab, and then we switched to a neutrino program. And then the staff at Fermilab said, you know, we have this wonderful um, uh, ring that you know, Foster and his friends built, and we can now fill that up with protons and make a lot more neutrinos by using it for that. So you find that the, the anti-proton recycler ring itself has been recycled uh, to, as a proton storage ring. And you're still and, in contact with and, Fermilab? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm on, I'm on mailing lists and stuff like this. I have a lot of, lot of <laughs> uh, When we had the ribbon cutting for their next big construction project, I was out there and reminded them what my ID badge number was and <laughs> everything else. Um, what do you love most about Aurora? Uh, it's diversity. You know, that's, um, that, that's what, you know, what I, I've always been so proud. You know, when 
I, I've actually represented two different districts in, in Congress. I represent first Dennis Hastert's district, which was Aurora, and then pretty much farmland going out to the Mississippi River. And then, um, then I, I represented that district for about three years, and then I lost uh, to Randy Hultgren in what was the Tea Party wave election, uh, and so was out of office for two years. Um, and then when I decided to come back, um, I found that my old district had been cut up into six different pieces. And I said, okay, if I'm going to run for, for Congress again, which one of the six pieces will I run in? And I had to, you know, I, it was just clear that the piece I wanted was the piece that had Aurora. And because I have so many friends here, um, uh, looking at the trajectory of Aurora, you know, when I, when I moved here, coming from Fairview Lab, um, geez, 40 years ago now, the, um, uh, you know, you'd ask people, well, you know, where do you want to live? Well, you'd be careful, it's dangerous, you don't want to live in downtown Aurora. Right. Yeah. You know, that's a place you just, you know, you know, roll up the windows and, and lock, lock the, the doors, doors and, yeah. and drive too fast <laughs> type thing. And, you know, I wasn't, um, and it wasn't just Aurora, Elgin was like that. And, and then looking at the tra trajectory, um, you know, I, I, you know I, give, um, I give Mayor Weisner a lot of credit and our, our new mayor. And certainly continuing that, and I think the key to that was making an asset out of the river, the river area. Yes. To just instead of having a bunch of old car lots and dead factories, you know, those were cleaned out, turned into parks, mm -hmm. things like the River's Edge Pavilion, um, re-energizing the Paramount, um, and also just extending the bike trails. You yeah. were there for the opening of that bridge. What I was there. Yeah, for the ribbon cutting. The ribbon cutting. Yeah. Of that bridge, but that's the latest step. Yeah. This is, you know, the turning point happened about 10 years ago, um, maybe 20 years ago. And I, I think one of the turning points is when they finally extended all of the bike trails to, so you could go through downtown Aurora. And then people from all over the suburbs who are used to driving along the bike trails, you know, in the cities north of Aurora, um, and then stop when you approach Aurora, they went through Aurora and they said, hey, this is a sort of neat place. Right. And. Um, Another turning point was when the community college set up the new new building there, and that increased the foot traffic. Or Wabansi, the new Wabansi building. Oh, that's right, in downtown. In downtown. Yes, that's correct, or oh, yeah, River really, Street. That was, I think, another turning point. And now you see people building loft apartments and, and young kids wanting to live in Aurora because it, it feels like a city and yeah, and it's close to the jobs that are available um, in the suburbs. I think we've changed. It's, it's, and now it's, uh, it's fashionable to be here in Aurora and things like that. I think we are starting to shed that, uh, that you know, that stigmatism, so That's to speak. Right. Yep. And even in the areas away from the river, where, you know, 10 years ago during the economic crisis, um, you know, people didn't have money to paint the houses. You know, even it seems like to mow their lawn. They were just desperate trying to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And since that time, you just drive through the neighborhoods and they're all fixed up. Uh, people now have a little bit of money, a little bit of time, they're not so desperate, and the first thing they're doing is really fixing up the neighborhoods. Yeah. It makes me, makes me proud of Aurora. I, uh, I moved from an apartment downtown Aurora to on the east side now, and uh, yes, we all take care of our lawns, pretty little, bird feeders, and yeah. And, you know, and a lot of yep. work was done, just, you know, cleaning up the curbs. There are, there are new curbs and sidewalks that have been built various places that help transform the neighborhood. But, you know, the, the momentum that you're seeing yeah. um, is, is something I'm proud of. Sir, the show ends on a positive note. 
What is your message for the people of Aurora and of our congressional district today? Well, today um, we are very fortunate that when the pandemic hit us, that we have the scientific tools to free ourselves of the pandemic. Uh, the people who suffered through the, the Spanish flu in 1918 mm -hmm. had nothing. They didn't even understand what a virus was. Right. And now, um, and now we understand. They were, in 1918, they were able to figure out that masks were very important. They, and, um, and a lot of what we have sort of done with scientific measurements, but they didn't really understand what was happening to them or what they could do about it. Now we have a detailed understanding of what's inside that virus, how it works, what the dangers are, and how to fix it. And the way you fix it is to get everyone vaccinated. And um, the, I, you know, I'm not entirely happy with all of the way the conversation has gone nationally about vaccinations. You know, it is, you, you get yourself vaccinated uh, for many reasons, some of which are, are selfish to, to make your life safer. Because if you get vaccinated, you are very unlikely to die in a hospital. Right. 99% you know, of the people dying in hospitals today are people who refuse to get vaccinated. And that doesn't have to happen, and it shouldn't be happening. Um, but you also do it for selfless reasons, because you want to protect your family, your friends, the people that you just meet on a street or a restaurant. You owe it to them as well, uh, because it's, it's one of these things like I know driving drunk, where driving drunk is illegal in our country for very good reasons, um, partly because you know it's a danger to yourself if you drive drunk. Uh, but in large part because it's a danger to other people. And if you're going around unvaccinated and unmasked, it's no different than driving drunk. And it's something that you have a responsibility not to do to your fellow man. So that's not, that's not, you asked me for a positive note, but that's, that's helpful. Positive note it's is helpful, positive news. We get ourselves yeah. vaccinated. We're going to have a really good rest of the year. So um, yeah. the, the vaccines are now formally approved. So if you're worried about being a guinea pig, don't worry anymore. You know we have done all the testing and more that we've done for any any vaccine. Uh, they are safe. They are working like gangbusters, yep. and everyone's got to do it. And so. we did mention that the Pfizer vaccine or uh, the Pfizer vaccine is has been approved by the FDA. Um, Congressman Foster, on behalf of Good Morning Aurora, our audience and our listeners, we appreciate your time very much, sir. Right. Very much. All of you guys have a blessed day, and we will see you back here for more news. Goodbye.